The Doctrine of Election by A.W. Pink As the doctrine of election is a part of the wider subject of God's sovereignty, a brief word on this first. In Revelation 19.6 we are told, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In heaven and earth he is the controller and disposer of all creatures. As the Most High, he ruleth amid the armies of the heavens, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? He is the Almighty who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He is the heavenly potter who takes hold of our fallen humanity like a lump of clay, and out of it fashioneth one as a vessel unto honor, and another as a vessel unto dishonor. In short, he is the decider and determiner of every man's destiny and the controller of every detail in each individual's life, which is only another way of saying that God is God. Now, election and predestination are but the exercise of God's sovereignty in the affairs of salvation, and all that we know about them is what has been revealed to us in the scriptures of truth. The only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. Like the teaching of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. And like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election must be received with simple, unquestioning faith. Let us now define our terms. What does the word election mean? It signifies to single out, to select, to choose, to take one and leave another. Election means that God has singled out certain ones to be the objects of his saving grace, while others are left to suffer the just punishment of their sins. It means that before the foundation of the world, God chose out of the mass of our fallen humanity a certain number and predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Acts 15.14 we cannot do better than here amplify our definition of election by quoting from a sermon by the late C.H. Spurgeon on things that accompany salvation. Quote, Before salvation came into this world, election marched in the very forefront, and it had for its work the billeting of salvation. Election went through the world and marked the houses to which salvation should come and the hearts in which the treasure should be deposited. Election looked through all the race of man, from Adam down to the last, 
and marked with sacred stamp those for whom salvation was designed. He must needs go through Samaria, said election, and salvation must go there. Then came predestination. Predestination did not merely mark the house, but it mapped the road in which salvation should travel to that house. Predestination ordained every step of the great army of salvation. It ordained the time when the sinner should be brought to Christ, the manner how he should be saved, the means that should be employed. It marked the exact hour and moment when God the Spirit should quicken the dead in sin and when peace and pardon should be spoken through the blood of Jesus. Predestination marked the way so completely that salvation doth never overstep the bounds, and it is never at a loss for the road. In the everlasting decree of the sovereign God, the footsteps of mercy were every one of them ordained. End quote. Why God selected these particular individuals rather than others, we do not know. His choice is a sovereign one, wholly gratuitous, and dependent upon nothing outside of himself. It certainly was not because these particular individuals were in themselves any better than the others which he passed by. Scripture is very emphatic upon this point. They, too, were by nature, children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, 3. They too had no inherent righteousness. Neither did God choose the ones he did because of anything that he foresaw would be in them, for the simple but sufficient reason that he foresaw no good thing in them, save that which he himself wrought in them. All that we can say is that God chose out certain ones to be saved solely because he chose to choose them, because such was the good pleasure of his sovereign will. 1. The Mystery of Election that election is a profound mystery we readily grant, that it is altogether beyond the power of the finite mind to fully comprehend, we freely acknowledge. Our feeling and our reasoning faculty cannot aid us in this inquiry. Yet this is no cause why we should refuse to believe what we cannot fully understand. We are surrounded by mystery on all sides. We cannot understand why God, who is perfect and omniscient, who at the beginning clearly foresaw all the fearful consequences of it, should have ever allowed sin to enter this world. But he did. To say as many do, that if God created man a free moral agent, he could not prevent it is an assertion which is utterly devoid of any foundation in God's word, and not only so, but it contradicts its explicit statements. For example, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou 
restraint. Psalm 76, 10 If God can restore to righteousness those who are the willing slaves of sin and have long indulged in the commission of it without interfering with man's accountability, why then could he have not preserved sinless beings in a state of purity? And if it was in his power to do so, why did he not do it? All we can say is, we do not know. God has not seen fit to tell us. The divine permission of sin is a profound mystery. Nor is this the only mystery connected with the history of our race. The glaring inequalities in the lot of human existence are equally insoluble. One is born blind, another is blessed with sight. One enters the world endowed with a strong constitution and enjoys almost uninterrupted health, while another inherits an incurable disease and sinks into an early grave. One is born to wealth and all its comforts, another to poverty and its consequent miseries. One is born of criminal or infidel parents, while another is the child of true believers and is reared in the fear of the Lord. One is born amid heathen darkness, another enjoys the privileges of gospel light. Now these differences not only affect happiness in this life, but they are among the determining factors of character and destiny, and yet they are not at all dependent upon the character or conduct of those concerned. When we ask ourselves, why are such differences permitted to exist? Why does God allow such inequalities? Again, we have to answer. We do not know. Yet we firmly believe that he has some good and wise reason for all his providential dealings. But to man in his present condition, they are profoundly mysterious that God's dealings are mysterious. His own word affirms, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And again, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul declares, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! Romans 11.33 Our true position, then, in investigating such a subject as this is that of disciples, learners, sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus, that we may be taught by Him. If we accept the Bible as God's Word, we must expect to find in it some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Second Peter 3.16 2. The Truth of Election 
The doctrine of election is clearly taught in God's Word from cover to cover. The Bible is full of it. It is one of the great foundation doctrines of the Scriptures. The very first book in the Bible has God's sovereignty for its central theme. Cain the elder is passed by, while Abel the younger is accepted. Ham and Japheth are ignored, while Shem the youngest is selected for the line from which the Messiah was to come. To Abram the junior, not to Nahor, the senior brother, is given the inheritance of Canaan. Ishmael, the firstborn, is cast out unblessed, while Isaac, the child of his parents' old age, is blessed. Esau, the generous-hearted and forgiving-spirited, is denied the blessing, though he sought it carefully with tears, while Jacob, the treacherous, underhanded schemer, is fashioned into a vessel of honor. Though the eleventh son, Joseph, is the one who receives the double portion. When Jacob, guided by God, is blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim, the younger, is preferred before Manasseh, the elder. The limits of our space will not permit us to go right on through the Bible. We can only now quote a few sample texts, but they are sufficient. I am found of them that sought me not. Isaiah 65, 1. For many be called, but few chosen. Matthew 20, 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John 15:16. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. John 17:9. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 14:48. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 11:5. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Ephesians 1:4. During Old Testament times, the principle of divine election was clearly exhibited in God's dealings with the human race. At the Tower of Babel, God for a time abandoned his direct dealings with humanity as a whole and singled out one man, Abraham, from whom descended the nation of Israel. This nation was his chosen people. He revealed himself to them as to none other. Israel was his peculiar treasure. They enjoyed direct fellowship with Jehovah, while other nations were left to their sins. But why? Why should God single out Abraham's descendants to be the recipients of his special favors? Had they a greater natural claim than others? Assuredly not. The Egyptians were a far wiser race than the Hebrew nomads. The Chaldeans were more ancient, more numerous, more civilized, and albeit exerted a much greater influence upon the rest of the world. Ah, but God passes by the wise and learned and chooses the weak and despised. Why? To demonstrate his sovereignty and exemplify his grace. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. 
And the same great principle has been fully displayed again during the last thousand years. During the past millennium, the vast majority of God's people have been gathered out of one race, the Anglo-Saxon. The testimony of history unmistakably rebukes the folly of those who deny the teaching of God's word upon this subject. Tell us, you who reject the doctrine of divine election, why has the Anglo-Saxon race been singled out for the enjoyment of nearly all the favors of the gospel? Were there no other people equally needy? The Chinese practiced a nobler system of morality and were infinitely more numerous. Why then were they left for 17 centuries in a worse than Stygian darkness? Why again should the whole of the African continent be left for a thousand years before the sun of righteousness shone there once more with a healing in his wings? And why is America today a thousand times more highly favored than India, which has thrice our population? To all these questions, we are compelled to fall back upon the answer of our blessed Lord. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Matthew eleven twenty six. 3. The Justice of Election in every age there have been those who argued that the doctrine of election charges God with injustice. They say it is not fair that he should single out certain ones for eternal life and permit the balance to be eternally damned. But such a charge evidences gross ignorance and perverts the fundamental principles of the gospel. Salvation is not a question of justice, but of grace. If the matter is to be settled on the ground of bare justice, then every child of Adam must perish, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To say that God has no right to single out only certain ones to be conformed to the image of his Son is to repudiate the cardinal fact of the gospel. Salvation is not a wage which we must earn, nor a reward that we must merit. It is a free gift bestowed upon the undeserving. But the moment we grant that salvation is God's gift, we are logically compelled to accept the principle of election. Has not God a perfect right to dispense his gift as he pleases? Certainly he has. And not only is this his prerogative, but he exercises it. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Romans 9.15 God is indebted to none. He is not under obligations to save any. If he delivers any from the wrath to come, it is solely due to his grace. He is under no constraint to save all if he would save any. If he chooses to pass by some, withholding the gift of salvation, then there is no ground for complaint. At the last great day, every man will receive all the mercy to which he is entitled. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Assuredly. 
The sentence passed upon those on the left hand will be a perfectly righteous one. Concerning this prerogative, his sovereignty, we may say first that to God belongs the right to exercise it. This right springs first from his being our Creator. He saith, All souls are mine. He has an absolute right to do with us as he pleases, seeing he hath made us, and not we ourselves. Men forget what they are, and boast great things, but truly they are but clay on the potter's wheel, and he can fashion them or break them as he pleases. They think not so, but he knoweth their thoughts that they are vain. Oh, the dignity of man! What a theme for a sarcastic discourse. As the frog in the fable swelled itself till it burst asunder, so doth man in his pride and envy against his Maker, who nevertheless sitteth upon the circle of the heavens, and reckoneth men as though they were grasshoppers, and regardeth whole nations of them as the small dust of the balance. The Lord's prerogative of creation is manifestly widened morally by our forfeiture of any consideration which might have arisen out of obedience and rectitude if we had possessed them. Our fault has involved forfeiture of the creature's claims, whatever they may have been. We are all attainted of high treason, and we have each one been guilty of personal rebellion. Therefore, we have not the rights of citizens, but lie under sentence of condemnation. What saith the infallible voice of God? Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. We have come under this curse. Justice has pronounced us guilty, and by nature we abide under condemnation. If then the Lord shall be pleased to deliver us from death, it rests with him to do so. But we have no right to any such deliverance, nor can we urge any argument which would avail in the courts of justice for reversal of sentence or stay of execution. Before the bar of justice, our case must go hard if we set up any plea of right. We shall be driven away with the disdain of the impartial judge if we urge our suit upon that line. Our wisest course is to appeal to his mercy and to his sovereign grace, for there alone is our hope. Understand me clearly. If the Lord shall suffer us all to perish, we shall only receive our deserts, and we have not one of us a shade of claim upon his mercy. We are therefore absolutely in his hands, and to him belong the issues from death. C.H. Spurgeon, The Royal Prerogative, Psalm 68, 20 and 21. Finally, let it be remembered that God never refuses mercy to those who honestly seek it. It is untrue that the non-elect will be lost. Let them do what they will. 
The sinner is bidden to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is freely invited to be a guest at the gospel feast. The promise is wide and plain. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. But if the sinner will not come to Christ, that he might have life, then his blood is upon his own head. If he will not believe, then it is his own will which damns him. 4. The Corollaries of Election The doctrine of election magnifies the character of God. It exemplifies His grace. Election makes known the fact that salvation is God's free gift, gratuitously bestowed upon whom He pleases. This must be so. For those who receive it are themselves no different and no better than those who receive it not. Election allows some to go to hell to show that all deserve to perish. But grace comes in like a dragnet and draws out from a ruined humanity a great multitude which no man can number to be throughout eternity the monuments of God's sovereign mercy. It exhibits His omnipotency. Election makes known the fact that God is all-powerful, ruling and reigning over the earth, and declares that none can successfully resist His will or thwart His secret purposes. Election reveals God, breaking down the opposition of the human heart, subduing the enmity of the carnal mind, and with irresistible power, drawing His chosen ones to Christ. Election confesses, we love Him because He first loved us, and we believe because He made us willing in the day of his power. Psalm 110.3 It ascribes all the glory to him. It disallows any credit to the creature. It denies that the unregenerate are capable of predicating a right thought, generating a right affection, or originating a right volition. It insists that God must work in us both to will and to do. It declares that repentance and faith are themselves God's gifts, and not something which the sinner contributes towards the price of his salvation. Its language is, not unto us, not unto us, but unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The Lord makes distinctions among guilty men according to the sovereignty of his grace. I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. Had not Judah sinned too? Might not the Lord have given up Judah also? Indeed, he might justly have done so, but he delighteth in mercy. Many sin and righteously bring upon themselves the punishment due to sin. They believe not in Christ and die in their sins. 
But God has mercy according to the greatness of his heart upon multitudes who could not be saved upon any other footing but that of undeserved mercy. Claiming his royal right, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The prerogative of mercy is vested in the sovereignty of God. That prerogative he exercises. He gives where he pleases, and he has a right to do so, since none have any claim upon him. C.H. Spurgeon, The Lord's Own Salvation, Hosea 1, 7. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.